0: Happy New Year, Soda listeners! Happy New Year! We are excited to be back in 2019. Uh, we are going to be bringing a lot of improvements and changes to the podcast, and of course, more great content. We're switching up the format, so please let us know if you like it. Uh, we are, you know, aiming to excite you and entice you, and you know, just make this podcast as enjoyable
1: for you as we possibly can. So we have a big announcement to make, Jasa. I don't know if you know this. Guess right. how many downloads we have right now. Like 5? Uh higher. 11. <gasps> so close. We have <laughs> we have over 700 downloads <laughs> what, what? right now. Woo. I know I've only so been live sad. for
0: less than 6 months, so Oh my god. Okay. Yeah, oh good my stuff. That's stuff. so
1: great. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who has downloaded and and listened and subscribed and reviewed. It really just oh, it makes us so happy.
0: Um, yes, spread it more. Yeah. Spread it and make it stick like you're shooting off a glitter cannon.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, let us be the glitter cannon of your podcast listening experience. <laughs> For you and all your friends. So, we are also really excited for the opening of a show called Only Human. The opening is going to be at Gallery 427. And it's on Saturday, January 26th from 7 to 10 p.m. It's a group show. There are four artists involved. Chloe Briggs, Matthew Gulkey, Jessica Meeks, and Aaron Sandsmark. That name will probably sound familiar to you. If you have listened to the episode from September 9th, 2018, entitled Aaron Sandsmark and Dear 1968, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. It's great. There was an extra, some extra content a week later that we dropped because the conversation was too good to pass up. You can find more information about the opening at gallery427.com or on their Facebook page. And I will be there and I hope to see you there, too.
0: Thank you, Sarah, and we also want to let you all know that we have a Patreon, and we do this podcast out of the joy that it brings for us to support our arts community, and if you would also like to get on board with supporting the arts community through uh, helping Soda to Put a spotlight on more things, artists, exhibitions, etc., that are going on in the Twin Cities and beyond. Uh, you can find us at patreoncom slash pod. Um, also, go to our website; it's on there, and we'll have the rest of our contact details at the end of the episode. Fantastic, Jason, What is coming up in this episode? So many good things is what's coming up. Oh my! And. End of discussion. Okay. Um,
1: <laughs> that's it. That's all. We're done.
0: That's all. Yep. Good <laughs> things. Just know it. Trust us. Uh, but I will give you a few more details. Uh, we're you. going to be talking about the government shutdown and how that affects the art world in the news. We're also going to be discussing the critical topic of unpaid labor in the art world, which is a crazy epidemic and um, some resources that are
1: trying to counteract that. And Sarah, I believe you have a wonderful interview for us. I sure do. I was able to interview Christopher Selleck. Um, I had reviewed Christopher's show at Suvac a couple months ago entitled This is a Record. Um, That episode was really great. And I finally got to sit down with Christopher in his studio and talk to him about his practice and how he became a practicing artist. It's really great.
0: Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear it. And should we go jump right into the news? Let's go! So what we wanted to talk about in the news is the government shutdown and how it is affecting the arts world. It has been shut down since December 22nd, and so as of the day that we are recording this, which is the 6th, we are on day 16, and it is the third longest shutdown uh, that the government has seen. Dang. Dang. Uh, federal institutions are closing their doors, such as the National Endowment for the Arts closed their doors immediately when the shutdown was announced. Um, a lot of institutions in Washington and beyond, such as the Smithsonian and the National Galleries, are... Um, have had to shutter already or are shuttering, um, and their uh, related museums in other cities, Mm -hmm. such as the National Museum of the American Indian, which is in Manhattan, was also affected. And... This is going to affect arts workers and the public alike, obviously the public, because uh, there is so much art that is on view right now. Artists who were counting on their works being seen by the public who are missing out on the opportunity to both see the art and also for the artist's work to be seen. Uh, As far as arts workers, they will continue to... Uh, do their jobs uh, within the museum. However, if they run out of funding before the government shutdown is over, they will have to keep working uh, with the promise that they will be paid back for their time later once the
1: government shutdown uh, is over. That must make it really, um, really complicated for people who have to pay like a mortgage and monthly bills <laughs> to just not get a paycheck for this time because it's it will be. You know, we're two weeks into a month now, so that's a long time to go without being able to pay your bills.
0: Absolutely, and um, I'm not sure uh, what the different institutions' uh, timeline for paying the artists are, but perhaps if they are paying the artists at the, the end of their show or have some kind of you know payment that needs to go through um, at its conclusion um, in addition to the opening... Uh, that could
1: also complicate payments to those artists or those who are lending the works as well. For sure. It also sounds like really frustrating to, as an artist, get everything ready, go through the process of, of months or sometimes, you know, over a year of preparation for a show to be in a large, you know, national, on a large national art stage, and then to just either lose out on the show altogether or have to Um, just watch as the days dwindle by towards the end of the exhibition and nobody can come see it.
0: One artist that I know and follow on uh, social media uh, traveled all the way to New York from Alaska in order to give a performance at the National Museum of the American Indian, and the show was canceled due to the shutdown. And so he had traveled all that way and was (laughs) then unable to to perform which which is very sad that's and it would have been an amazing performance for the public to be able to see as well so for sure yeah Yeah. so hopefully uh hopefully Mm -hmm. this this wraps up soon hopefully people are able to keep their normal pay schedules and things are able to open to give the public uh their content um as soon as possible And I believe that you had some excellent shows, to point out, Sarah, um, which we are unfortunately unable to view right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, there are some shows that will be closing in the month of January that uh, if if the shutdown continues... The public's just going to miss out on the last days or even weeks of this exi- of these exhibitions. So Which is the usually one, the
0: busiest time for museum yes. exhibitions.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people um, might have time off right now, too. And so it really, really adds to the sting of not being able to see these things when people might have, this might there, be their only chance to see them. So one of the shows that I wanted to highlight is called Transformer, Native Art in Light and Sound. It actually closes today, uh, January 6th, at the National Museum of the American Indian. The City of Hope, Resurrection City, and the 1968 Poor People's Campaign at the National Museum of American History also closes today. And so because the shutdown began Uh, in the end days of December of 2018, the public did miss out on, on a few, on almost a week and a half of those particular exhibitions. The final exhibition that I wanted to highlight is called Trail of Tears, A Story of Cherokee Removal. This show is at the National Museum of the American Indian. It closes on January 31st, and so the public is currently missing out on this really important and really excellent exhibition, which is just sad that that they're missing out on this. and, And depending on how long the government shutdown lasts, they might miss out on the final month of the exhibition altogether.
0: Well, we will post updates to our social media on when these institutions will be back up and running again. And in the meantime, uh, we can visit the works online and the exhibitions online, the artist pages, etc., and
1: support them from where we are. Yep. If you want to learn more about the exhibitions that are currently being shown at federal art institutions and see what's coming up and what's ending soon, visit www.si.edu forward slash exhibitions.
0: Today I wanted to talk about unpaid labor in the art world, which runs rampant. Um, the art world is the industry with the most unpaid labor, according to EFLUX. Um, some facets of how unpaid labor um, is an integral part of the art world, um, definitely comes highly from unpaid internships. Um, these are extremely common. Very few internships aren't unpaid. And even if they are paid, usually it comes with a small stipend um, or an unlivable wage. Um, sometimes it's, you know, even under minimum wage or something like you get $500 for a semester, something like that. It directly brings on this cycle of people from wealthier backgrounds um, who are able to take these positions to get their foot in the door in the arts world. When those who don't have the privilege of working for free, they cannot even begin to think about taking this opportunity. And yes, working for free is definitely a privilege
1: that not everybody has. Mm -hmm. Meaning Um, meaning that they have a... Uh, family to support their living expenses so that they can afford to work for free um, or perhaps they they were privileged enough to um, not be incurring any student loan debt during their time as an undergrad or a grad student and so they don't they don't have to spend the bulk of their time working at a job to pay the bills um, they can spend their time working for free or volunteering their time Yes, precisely. Or if, you know, they just come from a wealthier background where their
0: rent bills, etc. are not an issue for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just doesn't apply to everybody. It doesn't apply to most people. Um, also, I think a, a big misconception uh, or just kind of a shift in the mindset is that internships are meant to be for the benefit of education, but they're really often being used as a replacement for hiring a paid employee. Mm-hmm. Um, so a job that, that should be created for someone to have employment and depending, you know, hopefully, possibly benefits, um, stability, et cetera. Uh, They're able to, uh, an institution may be able to go through a cycle of interns, uh, you know, say it's for the benefit of education, which that may be true. Um, However, it may be a business plan in order not to pay a regular employee and also give benefits and, and things of the like. Yeah.
1: A good example of this are positions within the art world. At, um, at museums or historical institutions or even galleries that are project-based. So, for example, you might put out a call for an intern to do surveys on your visitors or to monitor a specific program that your institution is trying out to see what the reaction is from the community. That is definitely an educational opportunity for an intern and something that they can put onto their resume. But it also could definitely be a paid position because the institution continues to benefit from that work long after the intern has left. Truthfully, and
0: honestly, also, the employers do value paid positions. Um, A bit higher than internships as well. So as far as, you know, um, having a position that will elevate you farther than next job that you apply for, um, having a paid position will just look better on your resume than an internship. Also, often uh, people from a not-so-wealthy background will work a second job on top of the internship in order to be able to afford this opportunity. And I know a lot of people, including myself, um, who did this on top of going to school as well. And this particularly affects women in unpaid positions because women have to work longer and harder due to the pay gap in order to make up for the wages that they are denied by patriarchal pay standards. So because women are earning less across the board, um, they're just set back even further to try to make up this this livable wage um especially when taking on unpaid labor positions
1: i completely agree there's there is definitely that element of systemic oppression that's built into this perpetuating cycle and speaking from personal experience i did have a full-time inter- internship when i was in my master's program and i also had a part-time job at a coffee shop that i worked you know in the morning at like 5:30 until noon and then I would go do my internship in the afternoon and then I would go to school in the evening. But even that was a privilege because I had a car. And so I was able to drive back and forth from my job to my home, to school, and to the internship. That that in itself, having the option of my own personal transportation was a privilege.
0: And there are endless examples like this. Um, another area that affects um, unpaid labor in the arts is artists working for free. Of course, we know artists are often asked by family, friends, and professional networks to produce content for free, which just don't do it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Additionally, galleries and even sometimes museums also do not provide payment to the artist for their work. Uh, Or it's not a livable wage but a small stipend, Um, which is very shocking because some museums with steady, bigger budgets will even um, not pay or underpay artists for exhibiting their work. Um, Also, uh, you know, there's... There's another cycle of a lot of nonprofits are start or started in order to give artists a place to make their work public. And of course, artists then want to exhibit their work in a public place. Um, but these nonprofit organizations often work on shoestring budgets and ask the artists to show their work for the exposure. The artist wants the exposure, of course, so it's it's mutually beneficial, but just because these art, play, these art organizations are not being funded enough to pay the arts. It's the artists, it still perpetuates the cycle of free labor, you know, often on the part of the people working for the nonprofit organizations. Many people start these things and work at them pretty much full-time in addition to having another job so they can um, put artist work out into the public, but they don't get paid as well as then they can't pay the artists mm-hmm. and then this just kind of cultivates this culture of oh well pay isn't necessary
1: right. um yes yeah. so it just keeps going on ad continuum or that you're like it's an expectation that you will not get paid when you're first starting out as an artist which which needs to be done away with um, Again, speaking from my own experience with arts nonprofits, specifically in the Twin Cities, I know that a lot of nonprofits, uh, including the ones that I've been involved with, will ask for grants from, you know, MRAC or something. And, and the big reason in asking for those grants is so that the nonprofit doesn't have to charge the artist anything, which is goal number one. Uh, and goal number two would be to pay the artist for their time. Um, and even when that goal is achieved, even when grants are given The artists can only be paid a nominal amount, like, you know, $25, $30. So there is a movement within the nonprofit arts community, at least here in Minnesota, to try and break this cycle. But it's it's slow moving at best right now.
0: Absolutely. There are... organizations and more and more coming up that are working to combat these issues. One large resource that I think everybody in the art should know about is called WAGE, and that is an acronym that stands for Working Artists in the Greater Economy. Uh, they have a program called WAGency, which helps gives artists the tools they need to negotiate Um, compensation from an organization. So you can approach wage um, and ask them to help you with negotiations if you are going to be exhibiting your work. Uh, They look at the institution's overall budget and the living standards and the terms of the contract, and they will come up, they will calculate what a living fair wage um, for compensation for using that artist's work would be, and they will help You negotiate uh, with that entity um, for your wages. Uh, In Converse, they also have a certification option for institutions. So an institution can get wage certified by approaching them and then again they calculate the budget along with the standards of living in their city and they will come up with different uh, baseline pay amounts for things like solo exhibitions, group exhibitions with X number of people, screens, performances, etc. Uh, they also have a wage calculator for top institutions, which is available on their website. The Walker is included. Um, I actually used this personally because the show that I did with Apex Art, uh, they are listed on wages, uh, wage calculator. And so then I, as a curator, I was able to look at the recommended wage, uh, for compensation for the artists, and I was able to know what to pay them fairly. So it is a, it is a great resource for art producers as well. Um, yeah, they also make the point that, you know, not everybody is able to negotiate, uh, to the fullest extent of the wages recommended, uh, compensation. If a institution, for example, says that they absolutely cannot pay you uh, up to the amount that wage recommends, uh, and you have to take that lower amount in order to support yourself, that's totally fine. They will work with you on any next uh, wage discussions that you may have in the future, and also your your negotiation makes a standard that these places can expect negotiation and more of a push from artists and that that slowly chipping away at that rock will hopefully you know over time make budgeting structures different within institutions to be able to allow for these fair wages also if you are in the situation that you would be able to refuse the opportunity if you don't get paid fairly, that also gives those who come after you, who may be less privileged,
1: more room to be able to negotiate as well. Sure. So in in this cycle of, of non-payment or uh, unfair low payment, there are ways to to fight back to establish new standards for the arts community in general. That sounds like really good work that WAGE is doing.
0: Absolutely, and I believe that you know of some more local opportunities and resources that are
1: available to artists in the Twin Cities area? Absolutely. There's two that I wanted to highlight in particular. Um, The first one is Springboard for the Arts. This is an organization that's been around for quite a while. They have, um, you know, access to job boards, internship boards, but they also have um, funding options, uh, so links to grants for individual artists or even a group of artists if you wanted to work together. They have a resource center that can be accessed for free where you can learn about um, art law. You can learn about how to do your taxes as a As a freelance artist, you can learn about how to get insurance as a freelance artist. So their resources go far beyond just acquiring funding. You can can access all of their options on their website, which is springboardforthearts.org. The other option that I wanted to highlight is uh, mnartists.org. This is a, a more community-based project out of the Walker Arts Center in Minnesota. They offer free promotion. There's articles by a member of the artist community. There's a really good sense of community support. They also have an opportunities board that you can follow for opportunities to submit your work to group shows, individual shows, residencies, etc. So it's got a, a varied uh, list of options for you as an artist.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. And we hope that this little segment was able to raise more awareness on how unpaid labor in the art world uh, continues to plague the arts today and um, some great resources for how to try to combat that epidemic, as it were. So uh definitely check out uh these resources that sarah said and we hope that you get back to us with even more opportunities that we can make known uh to help artists and those working in the arts to receive fair compensation oh thank you
1: jason this was such a great segment you're such a great segment <sighs> of, of my heart we knew that was going to happen didn't we Yes, we all did. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's get on with it. All right. So yeah, let's get into it. The interview that I did for this week's episode is with Christopher Selick. I, I always feel like in my interviews, it's really important to discuss how our artists developed their profession. Like, not all all artists go straight from creating work when they're young to, like, obtaining an arts degree to making a living as a practicing artist. It's it's not always such a straight line. In my interview with Christopher, we do touch briefly on that. You know, he, he talks about how when he was in the U of M art program as an undergrad back in the nineties, and he really wanted to create photography, um, how difficult it was for him to not only to get into that class, but then to, you know, at the time you had to use a dark room to create photography and how access to a dark room could be problematic, how you had to be associated with an institution or know somebody who had a dark room and would let you use it or pay for a dark room. Um, He also talks later about his time as a, as a program associate at the parts gallery in Minneapolis, this was a part-time position that he had at the gallery, but he would often end up working full-time hours, but of course was still only paid as part-time. And that's something that, that a lot of people in the arts and humanities experience. Can confirm. Yep. Right over here. Raising my hand. Can confirm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really hope that you all enjoy the interview that I had with Christopher. I know I enjoyed it. He's a great guy. And it's, it was really it was really informative and enlightening to hear him talk about his development as an artist. And I, I hope that you all enjoy this interview as much as I did. I'm looking forward to it. Let's uh, let's get into it.
2: Woo! Welcome. <laughs> like you just walked in
1: the door. I did. I did. Hello. Here I am <laughs> for the very first time. So I am here with Christopher Sallet. Christopher is a photographer who was also branched into. Printmaking, sculpture, installation art, and he lives and works here in the Twin Cities. Christopher, thank you so much for letting me invade your space. Hey. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Hi. Hey. You sound different than the last time I spoke to you. Like three minutes ago. (laughs) So in, in whatever voice you feel most comfortable with, (laughs) Could you start off by telling me about
2: yourself, where you grew up, and how you got into doing art in general? I was an Army brat. I think for me that's sort of important. Um, My dad was in the Army, and we traveled a lot. Once I was finally settled in Duluth, where I feel like I grew up, even though I'd lived sort of all over, and having a group of friends that I'm still in touch with, people that I've known since I was nine, yeah, I moved down here to from Duluth to the cities um, to go to college in '93, and started at the U so long ago when it was actually trimesters, and got frustrated because I couldn't get into the photo program, basically at the time because I was so low man, you know, freshmen basically had to at the time. This is sort of crazy to think of. They would have computer printouts of classes that were available so you put your schedule together go wait in line and hope that the one class that your whole schedule was built around didn't fill up so then if it did then you'd sort of go back to the printouts and sort of put together a schedule so as a freshman you just basically got what was left Mm -hmm. so I got really frustrated not being able to get into photo or art so I Put a pause, and then the next year ended up going to MCAD, which was a great experience but that I probably was not ready for at the time because I just wasn't as focused as I needed to be.
1: This was in the nineties.
2: Yeah, okay. um, ninety four is when I was at MCAD the first time. Okay, um, which was something. That for a long time I was like, oh, I dropped out of MCAD, but I actually was kicked out for failing academic probation, mm-hmm. um, which was something yeah. I had to write about when I was applying for grad school Yes, there. Oh. it wa- I, There wasn't a formal interview for the grad school there, but it was uh, something I felt like I needed to address.
1: Fair.
2: But yeah, that experience was very eye-opening for me because it really opened me up to a lot of different ways to be thinking and looking at photography sort of served as a, an introduction on a very basic level to like the photo community.
1: When you were in MCAD? Yeah.
2: Okay. And then from that just continued to make work at the time, the you know, late nineties a lot of it was darkroom based. So you had to have access to a darkroom or be sort of affiliated with an institution or be able to afford to pay someone to do it. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of moving along, making work sort of drips and drabs when I could, and was actually starting to get some momentum. step for me was getting an internship at Parts Gallery, which is lowercase p-a-r-t, lowercase s. Okay. Parts Photographic Arts. I get it. All right. And uh, that was just a great opportunity to work with national international artists who were sending work a lot of it definitely was focused on regional photographers sure. artists critics etc but it was a good bridge to that next level mm-hmm. and actually while I was there in I think 99 2000 we hung I, I got to help hang because I was an, a gallery associate not that I curated or laid it out or anything mm-hmm. um, one of Alex's first shows Oh my gosh! With his
1: mentor, Joel Sternfeld. So this internship is something that you sought out on your own because mm-hmm. at this point you
2: weren't you weren't associated with the university.
1: Mm-mm. No.
2: Yeah, it was, and I mean, more as a way to just get in the door, sort of as yeah. like a volunteer, and then yeah. through that internship, I was hired on as a programs associate mm-hmm. for paid for twenty five, but usually working forty to yeah, fifty, of course, and then. Um, working at Flanders Gallery as their director for a number of years, which was also a great experience. But through both of those, it just got to be working in arts as an administrator was taking away from sort of the want to make work. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was also partying and sort of letting myself be distracted as I was being more inspired and sort of, like, getting momentum, I was also sort of, like, stopping myself at the same time. And mm-hmm. was a pivotal moment where I, um, in 2005, where I got sober, or sorry, 2004, that I got sober, that really sort of changed my life. Because for me, I was, I always had such a fear that, oh, my inspiration and ideas came out of that. The partying culture. Yeah, or sort yeah. of, I mean, that was that. something that I was, like, photographing sort of like a Nan... Like, Nan Golden was definitely an early influence. Mm -hmm. But feeling like, oh, my work comes out of the ideas that I get when I'm, like, drinking or when I'm, like, high or something. And in reality, like, maybe, sure, maybe some ideas did come from that. But because of that, I was less likely to hang on to those ideas or follow through on them or be able to bring them full circle. I can see that the inspiration
1: is there because of the activity and the socialization and the place mm-hmm. but it's fleeting.
2: Yeah, very fleeting. Oh yeah, I mean like I do and I still do like write stuff down. Mm-hmm. Um and ideas that I'm meant to sort of work on will just sort of linger. I try and keep like a moleskin or something and yes, before I start a new one I sort of go back through the old one and just make sure that I'm bringing forward or sort of picking up any sort of ideas that I've left behind. Mm -hmm.
1: I did go to Christopher's show This Is a Record at Suvac, and that was in the episode Haunted Basement and This Is a Record. So,
2: Not at the same
1: time. Not at the same time. Those things are not the same. They just happen to be in the same episode because they were both in October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This Is a Record is not the Haunted Basement. At what point in time do you decide to to not step away from photography but to integrate other artistic
2: practices into your general approach. After I quit drinking, just took a period of time to get um, comfortable with just doing whatever and had a period of time where I was like following my bliss sort of I did uh, I did a year of like ballet, I tried rugby with no insurance, so it was like maybe we'll (laughs) stick with um, we'll stick with ballet. And kept sort of photography in the back of my mind, but wasn't necessarily thinking about it. After a period of time, I just wanted to, you know, finish my degree, and and, and just to do that sort of in earnest, I just started over and went to MCTC, okay. which was great, because I started doing generals, and then at the same time was um, doing their photo and digital imaging is a technical degree based program
1: okay.
2: that is for a certificate. It's a certificate based because it's technical mm-hmm. which served as an introduction to digital, which is and studio practice. And I was still sort of hanging on to oh the why is important. But that technical studio based work was something that I carried into my early BFA work. Through that grad school experience, I mean, I had so many pivotal moments or sort of lightning rod ideas, or I guess I don't know if I'm describing that right. But, I mean, one of them was just um, my mentor at the time, um, Catherine Tershon. She just put out this idea that um, when you're sort of struggling with an idea to just make the work, just to show up and do the thing, and I think previous to that, I'd always cons- I had always had concepts and ideas for projects and ideas that I would mentally talk myself out of instead of like, oh, this would be a great idea, but this, this and that and this, and oh well this'll be a lot and no Like getting hung up on the technical and, and like logistical aspects of doing it? Or all of it, you yeah. know, or the perception or what it'll look like or blah 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 to the point where you're like oh I'm just not going to do that you've just kind of you talked yourself out of it but her approach to just making was so to just you know when in doubt just sort of make it was so key for me just becoming open to all these ideas where I had projects that I would just work on and not necessarily get a um, a resolution to, then I could put a pin in an idea and then maybe move to a, you know, a concurrent project, leave that first one sort of idling and simmering in the back of my head and sort of work through another project or idea, and then maybe something in that project would be this aha for that project that would also sort of help me, um sort of resolve an issue I would be having. Like, I think one of the first projects that I worked on at MCAD was this project uh, about beards. And um, thinking about, you know, beards as being this almost, like, mask yeah. that men wear or have as sort of a symbol of virility and masculinity. Isn't,
1: and but isn't and, beards, isn't that the term for the, I want to say the old-fashioned term, but, like, when it wasn't safe to be out as gay, you would marry a woman, and that was your beard. What was yeah, yeah?
2: yeah I mean, that is sort of a double. A I mean, double there's a tabler. lot of yeah, yeah, a lot of doubles that sort of happen in there because that, you know, beards is this idea of masculinity or this sort of idea of what being a man sort of looks like. Um, the earlier beard stuff, like I said, was clinical. It wasn't necessarily resonating the way I wanted it to. So yeah, meeting Matthew Brandt, having the studio visit with him, and he was really just like, you should physically cut one of your pictures. And it was like, no! The beard drawings have this look of drawing. um, And it's almost deceptive in the way that they're... They appear to be drawing, but they're photographed. I think calling them beard drawings further sort of like obfuscates that a little bit. But then once you can see... These just thin, you know, black and white lines for uh, beard hair on, like, a fine art photo paper, it, it comes off as being, you know, mm-hmm. pencil marks, which, if you're not seeing it in context, can look sort of like an abstract... You don't recognize it right away, Yeah, so it's like not going to make any sense. A, a marking gesture or something. Yeah. But then once... It's sort of like with a lot of my work, I think once you see... Once you get like a mental key, I guess, to what you're seeing, then you can sort of like, oh, like they're all beer drawings or it's body hair and yeah. just removed in that way. Being freed up into thinking much more conceptually and sort of working through ideas in that way of just making things when I was unsure of how they would be as a final product or you know, final object, etc. um... Being able to work through that ambiguity and sort of um, uncertainty was, I mean, key for me in just being able to work through different ideas that I'm, like, part of my practice that I still do today. At the same time that I was doing the beard drawings, I did this video installation that was in a, I guess it would be an eight foot by eight foot black box space Mm -hmm. that um, I had installed a video monitor that had been turned into a, yeah in a vertical mode instead of the traditional horizontal, mm. and positioned it, it was like a 27-inch TV, so once it was um, tilted on its side and hung at a bathroom mirror height, I sort of recreated, well, I guess that was the first time I, now that I'm saying this out loud, was the first time that I sort of, like, recreated, like, a bathroom space. But yeah, there was the monitor, there was a little shelf underneath that that would have looked like a bathroom
1: so the so the idea is that the the viewer comes in this monitor is at bathroom mirror height right. and it's recognizable because you've
2: created this space to resemble a bathroom so you've already put them in the mindset Yeah, of what I mean, to expect the bathroom I mean in the recreation it was just the mirror and then the shelf which was I think a 12 inch shelf that ran the you know the width of the sure. monitor had shaving cup, a shaving brush, and then Mm -hmm. a razor. Mm -hmm. All objects that my grandfather, who I think had just passed away, had given to my dad, who had given to me, as part of this display that, you know, then became sort of this object that I had.
1: So what was the video?
2: It was a video of me standing in front of the mirror in my house, shaving. You're very close, it's almost like chest right below my eyes. Well, yeah, you can sort of almost tell that it's me. I started with a full beard and a black shirt standing in the mirror and then you see me clipping my beard. I'm sort of like removing like my outer shirt and I have like an undershirt on under that. And as you're sort of going through the video, I'm like clipping away with scissors parts of my beard. All of a sudden you're like seeing the the layers of things sort of coming off. Mm -hmm. I'm taking my shirt off. I'm like clipping the beard away to the point where I like buzz it and then I actually shave the beard off. And this idea of beard removal was sort of this idea of growing up in a household without my dad there. No one really taught me how to shave. I sort of learned to shave out of the magazine. I'm really at an exciting point now where I'm just starting to be recognized as a printmaker and as an installation artist or... I tend to say that I make objects instead of sculpture because I feel like that tradition of sculpture is so specific and rigorous. It it, it brings to mind a specific type of object. And engagement. Yes. Where I think as a photographer sort of walking into different areas or different mediums like with sculpture and not, you know, feeling like I'm going to make stuff with plaster or Paris where a traditional sculptor would be like you know Gaffa I'm working you know they would just know like Hydrocal or like all these yes. different yes, types sure. of plaster and I'm like oh I want to make objects with plaster so I'm getting plaster of Paris that I get at Michael's or but yeah it's a great for me it's a great moment to just sort of be making photographic work that I think is very strong and engaging but also having these other investigations that are being Shown together, and I mean, I even had a piece in the um, this is a record show that's a photograph a photograph with screen printing over it that mm-hmm. was an object that people really just looked for. So, Christopher, I could talk to you for days, thank yeah, you so much. Me too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I not talk, <laughs> talk to you, <laughs> no, it was great to see you guys, um, in the studio. Or in the in the gallery space. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I've, I mean, I've gathered this from your podcast that this is very common, but sort of going through the show and making sort of the observations about the work and then the relationships of the objects and then the material interests and just, you know, spending a good amount of time like looking at the work, which I think is the beauty and sort of the power of like galleries and museums where you sort of go there to do that. Thank you so much. Yay. Well, thank you again for coming, and hopefully, you won't be a stranger. I plan not to be.
0: Thank you for joining us, soda listeners. You can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog. Please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at stateoftheartspod or
1: search for Soda Podcast. You can find episodes of State of the Arts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. We have a Patreon. There's a donation tab on our website. Donating to the Patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast.
0: And as always, our music is provided by the Von Tramps.
1: Record. I also have to let you know that in the moment that I, like, leaned down to hit record on my computer, Kitty took that moment to lay on my arm. So now I'm stuck. I'm stuck here. I can never move this arm again. (gasps) Except something has moved in the outer doors. Kitty is now on high alert. Oh, my God. Is it a monster? Who is it? You better go find out. <laughs> now I can move my arm. Ha, <laughs> ha, Okay. So remember how when you and me and other people went out for dinner on New Year's Eve, how fun that was? It was great. Mmm, the sushi. Yeah. Yep. Ah, oh, so much sushi. And then we had um Sake. Right, and uh, I bought myself thirty-five dollars worth of sushi, and it was great. And then we tried to go to a bar like Cool Kids, like bar hopping in St. Paul. <laughs> and then it was like we were literally cool all kids of a sudden, because we were frozen. We were literally cool kids. We frozen, absolutely frozen, and we tried really hard. and And we were walking from one restaurant to this other bar. And as soon as we had been outside for I think like two minutes, one of us said, Wow, this was a mistake, but we were gonna do it. We were gonna go. So we tried to go to this bar and I don't know what happened. There was some sort of like like nominal like some sort of nominal entry hurdle that we had to cross. We had to like get a ticket or like go around to the other door. And that It wasn't nominal, it was sold out. Well no, but they were gonna they were gonna let us in the other door. We would have to pay, though. Yeah, we would have had to pay. But it would have been, like, you know, like, less than $30. Anyway. For a Spice Girl dance party, which, if we were alone, <laughs> that that Spice Girl dance
0: party would not know it hit. it. But because we were in the company of some who do not find that to be
1: as great of an idea. <laughs> we abandoned ship. We did. We abandoned ship, and we abandoned ship hard. <laughs> oh, my God. Just right away. <laughs> <laughs> we are like, no. None of this. And so we... Walked back really, really quickly to my car, the car in the parking garage. And we were like, no, this isn't happening. We got into my car and sat there contemplating our frozen existence. And then I was like, guys, let's go get cake. And so we went to come.
0: We literally <laughs> went to come at like 10.30 p.m. on your <laughs> <evening.
1: laughs> this. I bought this beautiful Oreo ice cream cake because I really wanted an ice cream cake. And then we went back um, to house. And then... We had, like, some champagne, also known mm-hmm. as champagne, colloquially. and In front of the fireplace. In front of a fire. We were, like, adults, man. I think this is the true mark of an adult when, when New Year's Eve we, comes. We skipped the club. And we skipped
0: the club. In favor of having cake and champagne in front of a fireplace. With,
1: with like, you and me and, and two them. other people and a dog. And that was it. That was the extent of our New Year's party. <laughs> and then what happened? So I had this cake. It looked really good. Put it in the freezer, right? Stop something. What? Yep. yep. No, you didn't put it in the freezer. You just put it outside. I just put it day. outside because it was so <laughs> effing cold. And then we we did that and we, you know, midnight came. We we drank the, the champagne. We said, Woo, happy new year. And um and then like soon after, like not 20 minutes afterwards, I think somebody said that they were tired and needed to go to bed, if I'm not mistaken. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go to bed. No. Yes. You left at like 1 or one thirty. Oh, okay. So like 90 minutes. Excuse me. You, you and I stayed up for a while. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Because the other ones went to bed. Because they were tired. Weaklings. I know. They weren't committed to the party like we were. Ugh. So Jason and I stayed up reading what tweets about the new year or something.
0: Yeah, like some kind of BuzzFeed hilarious tweets about yeah. the anticlimacticness of New Year's. Yeah.
1: It, our attempt to have a party on our own was, I think, thwarted by the fact that the two of us were also very tired because we are also old. Speak for yourself. I mean, I do speak for myself as you are younger than me. You're in a different decade than <laughs> I am right now. Barely. <laughs> Anyway, you will join me soon. Um, So yeah, then, then when I was ready to leave, I was like, oh, better not forget the cake. So I took the cake home with me. Now I have this beautiful ice cream cake in my freezer.